I think we were litigating the 90s cycle until 1999, seriously. I think North Carolina, objectively, over the last 40 years, has had more litigation on redistricting than any other state. This is Under the Dome. On today's episode, we'll take a closer look at redistricting in North Carolina. For the News and Observer and NC Insider, I'm Brian Murphy, your host for this episode of Under the Dome. It's Friday, May 14th. This episode will focus on redistricting, which never seems to end in North Carolina. But the U.S. Census Bureau released its top-line numbers uh, by state, and North Carolina is getting a 14th U.S. House district for the 22 election. The state currently has 13 districts. County-level population numbers and precinct numbers won't come out until late August or early September, which means the map makers, that is the lawmakers in the General Assembly and those hired by them to create the district boundaries, won't be able to start until then. The filing deadline is in December. The 2022 primary is scheduled for March 8th. It's a very tight timeline. I've always wanted to know more about this process and how it all works, and I think my guest today is just the person to explain it. Jerry Cohen, basically a North Carolina elections guru and a 35-year staffer at the General Assembly who did districts for three decades. I should say uh, Jerry serves on the Wake County Board of Elections. He's an adjunct professor at Duke, and he served on the Chapel Hill City Council. He's a three-time graduate of UNC, so he's got me beat by two degrees there. And like myself, he's an alum of the Daily Tar Heel. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you so much for joining me. Sure. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Let me start at the start. Um, Okay, here's a North Carolina map, and we need, in the case of the U.S. House, 14 equally divided districts. Uh, population-wise. How do you start? What, what, what's your first consideration? Is it, is it really that blank of a slate? Well, looking at what we did in the 90s, 2000, 2010 cycle, in two of those cycles, a seat was added to the 12th seat in 1990, I think, and a 13th seat the next decade, I'm pretty sure. Um, basically, the start of the process is you look at the deviations of the existing districts, which is going to be one less than the total you're going to wind up with to see how much over there or under there are. You might start with a totally blank slate once you get that information. We've called it things like malapportionment report or whatever, looking at it. Um, You can either work on those to start with, or you can start from scratch and build a whole new map. There's, I mean, two different approaches to it. I was doing some, I did some back of the envelope math, which is always scary for a journalist um, when some of the numbers came out. And it, it, so I so I started in the southeast corner of the state. You look at the populations of, you know, um, Brunswick County is really booming population-wise. So if you look at the population of New Hanover, Brunswick, Onslow, Pender, Columbus, Bladen, Sampson, and du- uh, Duplin counties, you're at right about 800,000 people, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of what a, a new district is going gonna, is gonna to encompass. Now, that's a pretty tight geographic district in the in the southeast corner of the state. Um, did, did I just draw a congressional district, or what other? Now, you, now you've been able to match up the population. What other factors come into play at that point? Well, that's certainly one way to do it. Other factors are incumbency, Voting Rights Act. Now we're not talking about preclearance under Section Five, which has fallen away, but but uh, Section Two, which deals with discrimination, for instance. You might start by looking at the first district, which is majority black, and see how does that wind up? That would be what we did in the past several cycles is look at the minority districts. Now, adding a 14th seat makes it easier to keep a minority district. Your first district might be 
could be roughly the correct population with 14 districts, but it would have been way short with 13. So you might start with looking at that. For instance, uh, do you have to keep a minority district in the Northeast? That's one of the concerns. I forgot to mention incumbency was another factor that's usually considered. Obviously, there's some partisan issues to any mapping. Um, once you do that, then some of the other things, for instance, right now, Wake County and Mecklenburg County have a district totally within them, the 12th and the 2nd. And it looks like in the next cycle that they could start with a district wholly within it. And then the remainder of both of those counties is enough for 35 to 40% of another district. Right now, they're each divided into two districts. In the past, they've been divided into three districts. I mean, there's plenty of ways to put together this pie, but um, you know, you don't have to have a district that's solely within one of those counties, but otherwise you're gonna wind up with two districts that might be 70% of those counties. So, I mean, there's, there's different ways to get at this. Um, you know, obviously from the mountains, you know, what's now the 11th district, generally we've always started by starting from the west and then moving east to where you have the right amount for a district. But there's plenty of counties along north from the um, Virginia border down to the South Carolina, Georgia border. So, I mean, there's plenty of ways to get at that. The, the fact that um, Representative Ted Budd is not running for re-election um, and that's, you talked about incumbency. The fact that you're removing one incumbent from the map making process may give them a little more, the people who are going to draw them, a, a little more wiggle room if they're going to look at incumbency. Well, in the past, when there's been no incumbent, whether it's the same number of seats or an extra seat, like happened when we added the 12th and the 13th, both in the last 30 years, um, if you don't have an incumbent, then it might be easier if you have to carve up a district and put it in several different places, or do you take that district and, you know, generally most of the districts adding a 14th are going to have to shrink some, like in Wake and Mecklenburg, they may shrink, but you may put different combinations of things. I, I can't speak to what's desire, desirable or not. That's not my job, but that's the kind of considerations that happened when I worked on those plans as a uh, staffer in the 90s, 2000, 2010, and even the late 80s. Yeah, I, I was speaking with someone from Carolina Demography who talked about, um, when you talk about shrinking the, the geographic footprint of like the second district in Wake County or the 12th district in Mecklenburg is going to have to shrink because there are more people in there. Uh, she was telling me that the, the first district, which you, you mentioned already, the the in sort of in the northeast part of the state, the majority black district may actually have to grow geographically uh, because it's been losing population over over time. Um, and so it's well, perhaps, perhaps because one quick look I took is that since we've added a 14th, it might be fairly close. One quick run I did showed it might be actually two or three percent over as opposed to other districts, which might be 30% over. Right. Those Mac, the Mac district and the, and the Wake district are probably going to have to shrink uh, considerably. The, um, we're talking a lot about the congressional districts, and we'll, we'll get back to them. But, you know, the, uh, the census also means they're going to have to redraw the house, state house districts and, and state senate districts. And you were mentioning that, uh, you know, in the state house in particular, um, they're not growing. They, they don't get additional seats like Congress does. So they've got to reapportion uh, the existing number of seats uh, differently. And, th and that may benefit people in, in Wake and Mecklenburg County. 
Right. Uh, taking a quick look at the census estimates for county population, which they came out, which of course could be totally wrong. A state Supreme Court case from 20 years ago said you start with looking at the county and can can you create a certain number of districts within the county still within plus or minus 5%. The last decade, Mecklenburg did that with 12 seats and Wake with 11. Well, if you look at those census estimates, then if they were correct, then both counties would get 13 seats, two added for Wake and one for Mecklenburg, because Wake's caught up and passed Mecklenburg in the last decade, at least if the estimates are correct. And if, in fact, three districts are moving to the urban areas and you have a fixed pie, then there needs to be likely three different areas, other things being equal, where a district is lost. The areas that have lost an absolute basis or gained less than the average are largely the Northeast, the Southeast, other than a couple of coastal counties, and the sort of arc in the Northwest. It's it's fascinating because for the U.S. Senate, for example, the candidates are already in the race. They're already fundraising. They're traveling. Um, but when you want to run for a House district, you're not even sure what, what that House district is going to represent, which counties. Uh, if you want to run for the state house, uh, the same thing. And so this timeline, uh, g- give me a sense of how quickly this can get done. And are people, given that we have estimates for the counties, are they already working on, on these maps? Well, you know, assuming the estimates was correct, you could look at some of the clustering, but then you have to divide things up. Like in the um, state house, for example, you could look some clusters, but timetable, you, we're going to get some type of data, they are saying now August 16th, but in a better format like September 15th. So let's assume for a minute that the August 16th data is workable to be able to use in various mapping software. Well, then you've got that. You have third-party groups wanting to use that data to submit maps. You have voting rights groups. You have both political parties. You know, last couple of decades, the parties basically drew districts on their own and submitted them or, you know, other interest groups. You may have um, um, civil rights, minority rights organizations submitting them or reviewing them. Well, if it's going to take a little bit of time to process that data and merge it with the maps and and perhaps um, voting information and voter registration by precinct. So, and with filing opening December 3rd, right now with a March primary, and there's not much play to move it any later and still keep a March primary, then it's rather, rather compressed because after the plan is adopted, there may be litigation. And and we don't know how long that would take, what a court might say, would they hold it up for a trial? We don't know how they affect that. I would say that most, but not all, previous decades, we wound up with a delayed primary after the census. That doesn't mean that will happen this year at all in any way, but this is an especially compressed timetable to And then boards of elections have to be able to assign voters to the correct districts. That's another thing that can take a bunch of time to do that and time to mail ballots on January. um, I think ballots go out like January 10th for March 8th primary, something like that. 
So, you know, there's a lot of deadlines piled on top of each other. If a precinct is divided, then it may take a couple of days for the boards of elections to manipulate that data. If a whole precinct is changed, it could take 20 minutes. So, I mean, it's, you know, there's different scales of, of problems. And then there's that what you mentioned is how much time do people have to look at it and see whether they're going to run or they're multiple incumbents in the same district. I think they've called that double bunking in the past or triple. So there's so many different puzzle pieces to fit together in a very compressed timetable. That doesn't say it's unworkable, but it's compressed. And this being North Carolina, we, we know there's going to be litigation. Um, I mean, really, any any state now, um, we know there's going to be litigation on this. Um, if you look back, the, the the districts that were drawn for the after the 2010 census ended up being challenged and, and changed a couple of times, if I'm not mistaken. And so um, there's almost no doubt there's going to be litigation. So it's it, I'm fascinated as a reporter on on how quickly that timeline goes and, and whether there are maps ready to go you know, within days of when, uh, you know, when these official numbers come out, I, I don't want to get you in trouble. So, so tell me if you can't talk about some of this stuff, but there's already talk about drawing a district for house speaker, Tim Moore. And then there's been some talk about getting Republicans to a, to a 10 to four advantage, you know, when these districts are drawn, um, how much, and, and you're given your rich history, how much does politics play in the drawing of these? I mean, I, I think outsiders like to think it's a math problem, but I think it's really a political problem, right, in many ways? You know, I started looking at this in the late 60s when I came to North Carolina, and it's always had a large political component, no matter what anyone says with both parties. Um, since, the, since the 90s, though, there's been important um, Voting Rights Act considerations which have to take place as well. I can't comment on whether a district should or shouldn't be drawn for a particular potential candidate or incumbent, but... but um, that certainly happened in the past. That, I, that was my question. That was my question. How, how much of that can, has been a consideration when it comes to drawing districts previously in the, the last three cycles? The, the political considerations end up playing a, a large role, right? Yeah, in the 1990s cycle, when I, when I was one of the principal people working on the congressional map, we had, when we had a sort of war room in the basement of the legislative building and where staff worked with legislators, and I've, I've worked on redistricting with both parties over time in 95 to 99, the House was Republican, the Senate was Democratic. So that said that both parties controlled the process then. Um, you know, it, it's a, um, a a complicated process. We had, we had members of Congress call me saying, I would like this precinct in my district, or they'd send their legislative assistant from Washington to come talk to me, or I'd get phone calls. I think 90, Two is pre-email. It's it's basically, and this is true everywhere, about the only time that members of Congress pay an extreme amount of attention to what's happening in the General Assembly. And I think that's true everywhere. I would imagine that that members of of uh, you're getting the same from the state house, right, and and state senators who either a are looking at the congressional districts or b looking at their own districts and and probably stopping by your your office there on the in the basement again. Right, although you know a hundred a fifty seats and hundred and twenty seats is you know more complicated, obviously, than 
what moved from 11 to 12 to 13 to 14 since I started working on this in 82. I think it was 11 then. So, And th- this will be the, the record for North Carolina back way back in the day. Uh, North Carolina did have 13. Then right. as we added states, uh, North Carolina lost some but has been gaining steadily. And 14 will be will be a record since the, the founding of the republic. Yeah, I don't think we I don't think we had this many even when Tennessee was part of North Carolina. Who who was in that room? <laughs> give me give me a sense of what's happening in that room. You know, outside of the of the political influence, people trying to to get you to to move some things around. But who's in that room? What, you I, obviously, I bet the process is now computerized to a large degree. But what are you looking at? Well, remember that the last several decades, a lot of the process took place outside the legislature with one party or the other working with the consultants to create maps. That's obviously true. And then they sent them in. There was a lot of court testimony about that and the trials of the last few years. And then at the legislature, you know, there's a lot of map making, uh, fine tuning a lot of the districts to make sure the populations are even. And then, then there's the you know, people like their districts or they don't. Generally, it, you'd have your committee chairs and perhaps a speaker or a president pro tem, and then you'd have you be working other staff. People might be working with the other party, working with their caucus on maps, or some staff people might be working with both. So it can be a very time-consuming process. Yeah, it's fascinating because, as I just said previously, I think of it as a math problem, right? I've got to get to 775,000 population or or 800,000 population, and and I've got these uh, boundaries for counties. Um, But that's probably the easy part. (laughs) Once you get into the political side of it and and who's in what district, that's when it gets uh, very, very complicated, it sounds like. Um, We talked about the timeline, and I'll let you go with this question. Uh, given, Given the timeline you just laid out, you know, is that possible? Is it possible to get the data September 16th and, and have maps ready for filing period in, in early December? Well, it would be better to make that timetable if the August 16th data was usable, but I don't know enough about the inside of that, the file structures, to know whether the August data will be workable as opposed to the September data. They're talking about old formats. If it's old formats, that's what I worked on. <laughs> I don't know what the bells and whistles in the new format that they're promising in September are, but it, but it's a tight timetable. I, I wouldn't tell you it's not doable, but it's going to require a lot of concentration and you know public participation. We There's talk about there will be opportunities for public participation and input, open process, hearings. Then you've got potential litigation. So, and it's probably going to take a week or 10 days to have the data ready once it's released in some format that can be used. I wouldn't tell you that it's not possible, but it, it certainly will be a tight timetable. Let, let, me, let me ask that question in reverse. When, when, you were, when you were responsible for this or working on it, how, how long did the process last in, in you know, 92 and 82 and, and 2010? Nine years, 11 and a half months. <laughs> I think we were litigating the 90s cycle until 1999, seriously. Right. I think there were like four cycles of litigation. And I know at the very end of the decade, Roy Cooper was the chair of one of the redistricting committees. So um, so it's it's. Uh, I think North Carolina objectively over the last 40 years has had more litigation on redistricting than any other state. 
That's amazing. And and I, I would expect we're going to get more, especially when you consider how close the U.S. House of Representatives is um, and the fact that one or two seats in a state like North Carolina may may make a difference into which party controls it. I, I imagine neither party is going to want to uh, want to cede any ground when it comes to that. Jerry, I, I really appreciate the time. And this was a great look at some of this process. Thank you so much. Sure. Thanks, Brian. For the News and Observer and NC Insider, I'm Brian Murphy. We'll see you next time on Under the Dome. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for our weekly political newsletter at newsobserver.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening.